You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. How can physicians better recognize the comorbidities that may affect older patients with heart failure in order to improve outcomes? Our guest today is Dr. John Spertus. He's a cardiologist and professor of medicine at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where he serves as clinical director of outcomes research at St. Luke's MidAmerica Heart Institute. John, welcome. Thank you, Janet. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, you recently wrote an editorial in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology about the need for a more holistic approach to patients with heart failure, specifically the elderly. Tell us a little bit about the study that you referred to with older patients with heart failure. Well, there was a publication in the Journal of American College of Cardiology by a group from Yale, including Servit Chowdhury, Yang Fei Wang, Tom Gill, and Harlan Krumholtz. And it was a very interesting study. I mean, what they did is they took you know an older data set back in 99 and 2000, Medicare systematically tried to understand the quality of care for heart failure by doing an in-depth chart survey of up to 800 patients from every state in the U.S. In doing this study, they spent a fair bit of money actually getting the charts and abstracting those charts for a broad range of what we normally call performance measures or quality indicators. And this includes discharge instructions and beta blockers at discharge and ACE inhibitors and assessing left ventricular function. And in this effort, they extended the normal traditional abstraction to include an accurate assessment of important comorbidities, including some that were very unique to the elderly, or at least more prevalent in the elderly, and those are limitations in mobility and dementia. And while this larger study you know, provided lots of important information over the years, these researchers went back and said, do some of these unique conditions that are most common in the elderly, including impaired mobility and dementia, influence survival? And they looked mm-hmm. at both early survival, 30-day survival, which is currently reported in Medicare, but also much longer-term survival, five-year survival. And what was very interesting was that they found that And I guess we would, as clinicians, think this to be the case, that people who were demented or had mobility limitations uh, had much worse survival. And even in fully adjusted risk models, these two conditions were among the most important in predicting survival. In this very systematic review, they also documented how often did clinicians or doctors even mention patients' dementia or mobility Well, you read my mind. I was going to ask you that because most of us in the rapid interactions that we have and certainly in our charting might not even note that in a record. And, you know, we don't. I think in caring for patients and what we document, you know, these important characteristics are are not systematically recorded because, A, I don't think we integrate them in the way we risk stratify patients. I mean, we pay a lot of attention to EF or creatinine, and so that's clearly well-documented diabetes and other comorbidities are well documented, but this is really not in our traditional framework of the way we think about heart failure and the determinants of prognosis after heart failure. 
Well, and John, I wonder if you would agree that one of the reasons that EF and ACE inhibitor beta blocker and those things are currently documented is that we've had performance measures and incentives perhaps attached to the documentation of those. I think that's true. I think that at the time this study was done, you know, we weren't held accountable for those as we are today. They do fit in our biological model of disease. And as clinicians, right. as we've gotten more sophisticated in understanding disease processes, as we have more tools and techniques for evaluating the underlying pathophysiology of heart failure, I think we've tended to emphasize that. I mean, we're scientists, we've had lots of scientific training, and we intuitively think that's what's most important in determining outcomes. And what this study highlights is that other things that, you know, seem very common sense that your mom or your brother would recognize would be important <laughs> in outcome. As clinicians, we've sort of systematically discounted that because it's not in our scientific model of the direct pathophysiology of heart failure. And right. so I think that there are two things that have led to the lack of documentation. I mean, one is in part performance measures, which were just starting to be highlighted in the literature, and, and we were just starting to be evaluate that and judge that. But the other is that it really... It is the patient, and it's not part of the disease, and we've become very disease-focused as clinicians. And so I think both of those led to the fact that, you know, one in three charts had no documentation whatsoever of a patient's mobility status. This is sort of a clarion call that we need to be thinking about that, not only in sort of defining and describing and facilitating transitions of care for patients who have mobility limitations, but also because it can be very useful in us identifying higher-risk patients and underscore the importance of both being aggressive with other treatments that improve outcome because patients with the highest risk are likely to benefit the most, but also to start thinking about potential interventions for things like mobility, occupational therapy, and rehab, and things of that sort. Absolutely. John, you mentioned mobility and dementia. Are there other comorbidities uh, in patients with heart failure that we commonly miss or don't record in our hospital charts? I think there are a lot. The one that's been written about most extensively is depression. You know, we're notoriously bad at screening for depression, even though it's very prevalent in this population. And while there haven't been convincing studies, the treatment of depression improves cardiovascular outcomes, there are Lots of studies that document the treatment of depression improves depressive symptoms. And if we want to broaden our, you know, efforts in treating patients to treat the whole patient, not only their heart failure, but also their depression, I think that's a really important other comorbidity that's not focused upon. And then, as you know, I'm very biased and committed to quantifying patients' symptoms, function, and quality of life. I think that their health status is very influential on their long-term prognosis but also is one of the main reasons why patients come to the hospital. They're exceedingly short of breath. They're very fatigued. And I think as a profession, we need to start more systematically collecting that, both at the time of decompensation, but also in follow-up, because patients who are failing to improve in health status and where we have an objective measure to really quantify systematically if they're not doing well can really lead to new programs and innovations in care that could really help us treat those aspects of their heart failure, their symptoms, and their quality of life in ways that we may not be giving you know, due attention right now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD. It's the channel for medical professionals. 
I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our honored guest today is Dr. John Spertus. He's a cardiologist and professor of medicine at the University of Missouri-Kansas City. He serves there as clinical director of outcomes research at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. We're talking about the importance of recognizing comorbidities in older patients in order to optimize their heart failure management. John, you talked about the number of comorbidities that we are not necessarily recording and therefore perhaps not attending to in a manner that we could. Talk to us about why this happens. What are the issues that are in our way that are keeping us from recording these, noting these, and then perhaps even maximally addressing them? There are a couple. I mean, I think the first is to sort of highlight their importance. The article we're talking about by Chowdhury and Krumholtz is a clear indication that these are prognostically important. And so for us as clinicians to appreciate the importance and the ability of these to better risk stratify our patients, I think is one step. I also think we're transitioning from the sole doctor who's solely responsible for caring and treating a patient to start thinking about team-based approach and systems of care that can allow us to bring multiple multidisciplinary resources to bear on the care of a patient. And In this setting, we're talking about decompensated heart failure, patients admitted with heart failure. And I think that as clinicians, if we can start to recognize comorbidities like impaired mobility or depression, we can create pathways within our hospital where it's easy for physical therapy and occupational therapy to come and evaluate the patient and make recommendations both for better assist devices for patients when they leave the hospital, but proper rehab and follow-up for those patients, or to engage a um, psychologist or psychiatrist in helping to assess and evaluate opportunities to treat their depression. And as we you know, become more organized around systems of care in treating these high-risk individuals, I'm hopeful that it will become easier for doctors to recognize and document these impairments because there's something we can do about it. It's not necessarily as important or valued by us as physicians to document this when there's just really nothing we can do. But if it leads to action, it really underscores the importance of recognizing it and then implementing those system-based care processes that will improve the care and outcomes of our patients. John, you're uh, such a visionary in this area. What health policy changes do we need could actually improve the quality of care for folks like this and for the system? Well, I think some are being sort of done to us, and the public reporting of 30-day mortality and readmission rates, for example, is something that Medicare is advocating and rolling out rapidly. And we as clinicians, if we want to look good, I mean, we always want to get an A on our report card. We always want to do the best thing for our patients. If we want to really do well on these public reportings, I think identifying these risk factors, which are actually not adjusted for in the risk models, because these are not systematically and routinely collected, will give us a strategic advantage to minimize readmissions and mortality if there are effective ways to treat or support patients who do have impaired mobility or dementia. And the demented patients may have a real difficulty adhering to medicines and identifying those patients and creating the support structures to help them get the medicines that they need regularly, I think is a real positive opportunity for us. So some of the health policy efforts that are going on, like public reporting, are one step. Other things that aren't as present today but are moving very quickly with the revolution in healthcare are the creation of accountable care organizations where, you know, 
doctors and hospitals, both on the inpatient and outpatient side, are going to be graded as a collective unit for the outcomes of the patients that they treat. These kinds of conditions are going to be important to recognize and to create good transitions of care, and they're also going to incentivize the inpatient, the outpatient doctors, and the hospitals to work together to figure out novel and creative systems to address these challenges. And these are sick patients, they're complex patients, and it's going to take more energy, resources, and real creativity to figure out how we're going to deal with this. And I think that as we see these accountable care units and organizations be held accountable for the outcomes of care, we're going to see lots of innovation around the country about how to address the totality of a patient's heart failure care, but some will start tackling these types of risk factors. And those who do it successfully will be able to teach others how we can do a better job caring for these complex patients. You know, you remind me of the initiative now going on across the country, Hospital to Home, American College of Cardiology, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, trying to bridge that gap safely for folks that are being discharged from a hospital. But as you said, the issues that go beyond the disease process into the comorbidities, the dementia, the medication adherence problems, and mobility, addressing those as early as possible, engaging the teams that you describe, can actually help get the best outcome for the patient, which is a smooth transition and no inappropriate readmission. And as you said, both with the ACO Accountable Care Organization, that we may be moving to a reward system or a reimbursement system that actually focuses on the outcome for the patient as opposed to the number of patients or the number of tests. I agree. I agree. Oh, I think so. it's going to be interesting. I think, you know, the ACC has really done a lot of things to help with this, not only the hospital, the home, but, you know, the outpatient pinnacle registry is another really nice infrastructure for measuring the quality of outpatient care and how patients are doing in the outpatient setting. In particular, the Pinnacle Registry has health status outcomes as one of the ways that it systematically documents how patients are doing. And by leveraging some of those systems, hospitals can reflect on how the last cohort of patients, perhaps over the last six months they treated, are doing, and use that data to have a data-driven strategy session with those elements of the accountable care organization that can creatively think about it. how can we do better? Are we happy with this performance? What new opportunities might exist? We've been talking with Dr. John Spurtis about the importance of recognizing and treating the comorbidities in older patients in order to optimize their care, especially those heart failure patients. Dr. Spurtis, thank you for being our guest today. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a privilege to talk with you. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.